0: Welcome Inside Rockstars, today with a very special topic, Be Simply Better with Patrick Bauweiss. Let me real quick introduce Patrick. Patrick is an Emeritus Professor of Management and Marketing at London Business School. He joined the school in 1976 after an early career at ABM. And has published widely on management, marketing, and media, for instance, with the famous Andrew Ehrenberg in 1988. His latest book, The 12 Marketing Powers of Marketing Leaders, co authored with former McKinsey partner Thomas Barter, was published in 2016. He's also a former chairman of which an experienced expert witness in international commercial tax and competition cases, and has been involved as an Advisor and early investor in several well known startups, including Research Now, Verve, and Attest. Today's topic is based on Patrick's book, Simply Better, that was a global bestseller, the first non US book to win the American Marketing Association's annual book prize, and that has been translated into seven other languages. So it's really great to have you here, Patrick.
1: It's It's a pleasure.
0: I I actually ha- remind uh, uh, reminded to the financial times um uh, reviewer who said
1: this book is for marketers who read too many marketing books that's that was the first sentence of the ft review <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a book for people who've read too many book about marketing for people who've read too many books about marketing
0: and and this was kind of uh, interesting because when i read the book the first time it was i think it's about f- 15 years ago were well, shortly after it has been published and you know i i got it as a as a gift from the company i was working with and i hated that this book <laughs> i hated it because i was an innovator yeah i wanted to innovate this company and now they gave me this book which basically seems to tell me hey forget your work <laughs> do stuff simply better so Patrick, let's, let's go into the meat a bit. Yeah. So most executives believe offering something unique is the key to success. So now you are arguing in this book that this is misleading. Uh, why
1: is it? Well, I think that the, the title of the book is Simply Better. The subtitle of the book is Winning and Keeping Customers by Delivering What Matters Most. And obviously, as marketers, we know that the people who judge what matters most our customers. And I think the emotionally challenging aspect of of our argument and our evidence and why you were unhappy when you first read it is because the horrible truth that customers are not that interested in our brands. Customers are very concerned about the availability of product or service categories. So if cars didn't exist, you know, for many of us, our lives would be very different. But if the particular brand of car we bought last time we bought a car didn't exist, bluntly, our lives would not be so very different. And I think that's a very tough—that's a very tough message for marketers. And that's why the F.T. started their review with "This is a book on marketing for people who've read too many books on marketing." Because as marketers, if we say, "What are we trying to achieve?" in most circumstances we actually have limited ability to grow the category we have some if we have a dominant market share we have a bit more if the category is a new category we can we can maybe accelerate adoption but usually with established categories what we're mostly doing is trying to increase our market share and maybe increase our price relative to the price of the competition and so as marketers what we are trying to achieve is to increase market market share and therefore we're very concerned about small differences between our brand and, and the competitors brands but if we take it from really the customer's viewpoint then the thing that really matters to customers most of the time is our ability reliably to deliver the, the basics of the category better or more reliably or at better value for money from competition. Now, I'm going to read you, I'm only going to read you one very short bit of the book, and this, but this is from the preface. One of the things about marketing books or management books in general is you're writing for people who are very busy and they very often don't read the whole book. So this is a quote from the preface, so you know it's important because you have to put the punchline at the beginning. This is the opposite of a a detective novel where you reveal at the end who did the murder, okay? Because people read the whole book for fun. Management books, in general, people don't read so much for fun. They read it to find something useful. So you have to tell them something useful at the beginning. This is from halfway through the preface, and it is the shocking fact that, and I quote, you do not need to offer something unique to attract business. Customers rarely buy a product or service because it offers something unique. Usually, they buy the brand, in other words, a particular named product or service. They buy the brand that they expect to meet their basic needs from the product category, gasoline or strategy consulting or mortgages, a bit better or more conveniently than the competition. In other words, what customers want is simply better, not more differentiated products and services. And as you can imagine... This came as quite a shock to many marketers, because when, when we start learning about marketing, we're taught two different things. One of them is customer focus, that the customer is the boss. But the other thing we're taught is you need to differentiate your brand from the competition. And I think historically, people didn't realize there's actually a tension between those. Because if the thing that really matters most To customers is you really reliably deliver the basics then the fact that one product or service is a bit different from the others isn't so important especially because in today's mature competitive markets it's almost impossible to have a significant sustainable unique selling proposition that that a a selling proposition if it's if it's important to customers will get pretty quickly copied. And if it's sustainable, then it tends to be fairly trivial. And that's why a problem in marketing is we see the differences much bigger than customers see the differences. Customers care much less about the things we marketers fuss about. And so I think it's an emotional journey we have to go on in order to say, if we've got something which we think is sort of quite important and is is unique, Our brand, do customers actually care and how much do they care? Yeah, and you know, so we're always tempted to add more features and benefits, things which are unique. We very often complicate customers' lives when we should be simplifying customers' lives. That's the core argument.
0: So, am I getting you right that you know, as an innovation guy, I would argue, hey, uh, I got it, but basically, product innovation I do because there is something which is unmet. There are unmet needs. And with this innovation, I want to to meet this unmet needs. I would, would like to bring a new feature or product that meets that. And with this, I will be the first on the market and will therefore have a competitive advantage, also dynamically. So I'm hearing that all this is true, but actually it's a much tougher game than be simply
1: better. Uh, Well, I think both are tough, but the more radical an innovation, the, the innovations which everybody loves, the ones that make you famous, are the ones which have two characteristics. The first, as you mentioned, is that you're the first mover. You introduce it first. And the second is it's a radical and significant innovation. The trouble is that most innovations like that fail. Okay, so the pioneer, you know, when someone introduces something which is which is not been done before in very many cases it turns out not to be very interesting to customers <laughs> it turns yeah. out to be more yeah. trivial to customers but in those cases where it does turn out to be genuinely in a material way meeting customer needs better than what was in the market usually the pioneer ends up on his face with arrows in his back and it is early second mover or third mover who executes better who learns from the mistakes of the pioneer very often who's bigger than the pioneer who then ends up capturing the market and then when when the innovation is relatively new and before the market has completely settled down the person who really executes successfully and bravely and and invests heavily may build up a dominant market share, and then that market share is of enormous value because it can be sustained. So if you look at the classic example of that would be Procter & Gamble. So Procter & Gamble, which is very, very good at execution and incremental innovation, you know, keeps improving the product behind something like Tide. Now, we've now reached a stage where it's getting harder and harder to do anything Which is significant, but for for decades Procter was able to stay ahead of the competition in, say, machine wash detergents because of relentless innovation, incremental innovation. Another clearly highly innovative company uh, is is Apple. Has actually, to my knowledge, never successfully been the first mover any sort of important product. What it's done is it's implemented so much better in terms of user-friendliness than the, than the other um, companies in its market. And that's even reflected in the name of the brand, which is Apple, right? So two of the great brands, the telecoms brand called Orange, Apple, which is a very, very big and valuable brand. These are the names of fruits. And at the time when Apple first launched uh, the Apple II, a very early personal computer, the other computers were all called names like PQ17. And the marketers all talked about how many bits and bytes and, and, you know, the cycle speed and all of those things. Apple went for uh, aesthetically pleasing designs, this brand name Apple, and, you know, kit which worked when you got it out of the box and you plugged it in and it was usable. And of course, now with the iPhone and so on, they've created a whole ecosystem, which is like that. So Apple, which is a highly innovative company, is also a simply better company. So it's it's interesting. Uh, we're very pro. My my co-author and I are very very pro innovation. But we think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of myth making about how radical and how original innovations are. Everybody likes to see themselves as we were the pioneer and we were radical innovators. The truth is from a customer viewpoint, maybe they weren't the first and maybe they weren't so radical. So it sounds paradoxical, but it's it's not actually inconsistent what you're saying and what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, it's a super inspiring. Yeah. So with the arrow in your back uh story. So you saying that even basically radical innovations company winning this game who are simply better right so do you have a do you have an example or two for companies who come up with a radical innovation then get shot shot by their copycats
1: oh golly um well i mean for instance the i I mentioned proctor earlier Uh, i forget who it is that first introduced disposable diapers uh, for well, I think I, I forget the name of the company, but a small company introduced disposable diapers and they were purely intended as a sort of niche product which you took with you if you had a, a, a small child and you were traveling. So you're going by plane or train or, or, or in a car journey. And then I, I, th- I think one of the other paper manufacturers or factory goods manufacturers may have then had a first attempt, but Proctor came in several years after the initial innovation and being Proctor they got their engineers working on it and they scaled it up as uh, any any listeners who are sort of young parents will know to their cost <laughs> you can spend an awful lot of money on what is essentially primarily paper and a few bits of plastic so these this is a very high margin category but it was Proctor who drove down the experience curve got the unit costs, down without bringing the price down proportionately um and uh, of course this is a, a product which you can sell over and over because the product literally gets soiled and thrown away <laughs> and so you have to you have to buy more but they were absolutely not the pioneer and at the time they came in uh you know what they did was was incremental improvements not radical improvements Now. I'm old enough to remember a time when there was a thing known as Japanese management in the 1980s, and people talked about Japanese management as something rather magic. And uh, as we now know, the Japanese there the, were the, the lots of dysfunctional things uh, to do with the Japanese economy, and and you know promoting people purely on seniority and so on. But the, you know the best Japanese companies are still. Very, very good, uh, the Canons and so on. Uh, One of them, uh, I mean, Honda and, and Toyota being examples. Now, Toyota was probably the example of a company which was world class in incremental innovation, what they called Kaizen. After Silicon Valley took off and the internet and so on, everybody forgot about incremental innovation, saying that's just old 20th century stuff. And the truth is, you need both. And the more radical and the more pioneering your innovation, the bigger the payoff if you do succeed, but the higher the risks. Yeah. And the truth is you need a portfolio of relentless incremental in- innovation, which is either taking costs out without reducing quality or is improving quality as judged by customers without increasing costs too much. And that's 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 a never-ending journey. It's it's relentless and very tough. And at the same time, you need to say, we have to be willing to bet big if we genuinely have something where we believe this is meeting unmet customer needs. And I know that your research is very much in that space of how do we judge where conventional market research isn't so reliable? So we can't just do a survey, because if you survey customers about needs which are not currently being met, they can't give you very good answers. They don't know the answer. And so you have to you have to use a, a you know a clever approach, possibly more qualitative research to, to to dig really deeply into, if you like, what people dislike about the category, which then maybe tells you about latent needs, yep. um, but also the kind of some of the quant stuff which you do uh, maybe with pilot tests and things like that, where you've got some numbers, but you know how do we scale these numbers up? So you need all of the above, but the thing which should never stop, is your assumption that our product or service can be improved, and you should be looking for ways of improving it without complicating it?
0: Let's talk a bit about uh, the science behind that, because there are too many business books which come up with a counter thesis, right, and to give good, great examples and uh, cases. But um, from your background, I suspect there is deep science behind this uh, this thesis, right?
1: That's exactly right. I think you mentioned uh, Andrew Ehrenberg. And so I did my PhD with Andrew Ehrenberg, and he was my great mentor. And this is the Ehrenberg after whom the Ehrenberg Bass Institute um, in in Adelaide uh, is named. And we did uh, quite a lot of uh, work actually on TV audience behavior. And in fact, my very latest book is a book called The War Against the BBC, which is highly political, and it's about the BBC's right-wing enemies in the UK. So I've, I've had a long-term interest in media. The work which I did with Andrew uh, Ehrenberg on consumer behaviour uh, was primarily based on panel data with uh, consumer packaged goods, where he and colleagues had developed uh, some surprisingly powerful and accurate models of multi-brand repeat buying behaviour. And although he never expressed it in these terms, one of the things which emerges from that again and again and again, it's, a, it's, it's one of the few things in marketing which is a genuine empirical generalization, um, is a is pattern Patton called double jeopardy, which says that if you have a frequently purchased category, then over a given time period, the over most, most time periods, the bigger brand has a double advantage and the smaller brands have a a double jeopardy, a double disadvantage, which is that the big brands are bought in a fixed time period by far more people or households or whatever than the small brands. And on average, those people who buy them, buy them slightly more often. And uh, the small brand has the double jeopardy that its penetration, its reach within the time period is much, much less than for the big brand. And also its average purchase frequency among its customers in that time scale is slightly lower. Now, turning that into language which marketers are more familiar with, then what that says is actually impossible to create a niche brand in which just through clever branding, you have a very small number of customers who buy your brand lots of times, but don't, and you know, and, and you represent a high proportion of their purchases. That doesn't happen. And so with my colleague, my former doctoral student, Sean Meehan, a professor at IMD in Switzerland, when we wrote Simply Better Together, we used that as our starting point. And we said that the thing which is not directly observable from these analyses of consumer. Repeat buying patterns, but which is implied is that they are all in the same market, and some of them are meeting customer needs better than others. In other words, they are simply better at meeting the generic category needs. And I think one of the twists is to say, what is nice is if you have some extra things which which the customers don't have, and if they have genuine value. But mostly the problems which the needs which are being met by the different brands are pretty similar and what really matters to customers is when you let them down now in today's modern economy developed economy the economy is 70% services and in services it's really difficult to be constantly reliable if you think of say the the hotel business you know the hotel business there are so many things which can go wrong and your interface with the customer is, you know, front of desk people and, and other people who have marital problems, who have you know <laughs> psychological problems and so on. Um, <laughs> you also have obnoxious customers, right? And so if you work in a service business, you have to treat the customer well, even if the customer is obnoxious and so on. So being simply better is really, really difficult. Starting with the difficulty of reliably delivering the basics, now I mentioned Toyota, okay? Toyota is still the most valuable car brand on the planet, and it was not created by its advertising. Most of us possibly can't even remember any Toyota advertising. Toyota is a it's a really boring brand, it has to be said, but is a very valuable brand because for the ninety percent of us who are not boy racers and petrol heads, the truth is we primarily want a car which reliably gets us from A to B, is reasonably easy to drive, doesn't have too many unnecessary bits of technology. Okay? And who does that really, really well? Toyota. And there's a lovely proof of that, which is a McKinsey study. One of the sensible things which old General Motors did was it set up a, a, a joint venture plant in California with Toyota. Okay, so this is one production line making one type of car, but when it got to the end of the production line, it was either branded as a a Chevrolet or as a Toyota, and the Toyotas sold at a higher price than the Chevrolets, and they outsold them four to one. The only difference was the badge. Now, that wasn't completely the only difference, because also Toyota. The after-sales was the Toyota dealer network as opposed to the Chevy dealer network. And so there may have been some small differences. But why on earth were American consumers mad enough to pay a premium for the same car if it was badged? And it clearly wasn't to do with the advertising. And the reason was, in their minds, over the years, they had the impression that the Toyota was less likely to let you down. It was simply reliable. okay, now this wasn't a sort of high powered sports car. this was a sort of everyday you know car. And that's brand equity. yeah, okay, so the the brand the Toyota brand is the most valuable car brand. It exists only in consumers' minds. And the main driver of that brand equity is those consumers and other people they know, their experience of cars. In in this case, whether they were were branded Chevy or Toyota.
0: Patrick, so the prerequisite of uh, the Simply Better strategy is that you truly understand what customers really value, right? Yes. So from my own experience, I know that that sounds easy because any marketer, marketer would say, hey, I know what they value. But I too often experience that they don't know. Why, for instance, I give you maybe two examples. One was a beer brand, and German mm-hmm. breed brands typically believe it's the tradition, the good quality of the ta- of the of the beer and so on. But actually the mass beer, what we found is it's a refreshment drink for adults. Yes, in in the US, it's always sold like ice cold beer and stuff. So they know they know what people want. They want a refreshment drink. In Germany, they they didn't got it. Yeah, so
1: yes, that's a great example. I mean, I think that the um, Germany, of course, is kind of where beer came from. So there is a big beer culture a- around Germany, and not not only in Bavaria. I think it, it's a, more widely and, and obviously in, in Bohemia as well. So Germans went to America and they created, they they created Budweiser and so on. But it it doesn't have the same the idea that this is a, a highly differentiated uh, product in which uh, quality uh, you know varies greatly and and so on. A little bit like the French with wine that this is, there's so there's a deep sort of now the truth about beverages is that under genuine blind taste conditions most consumers can't tell the difference between beverages which which are somewhat different but if the, if the appearance is the same and the temperature is the same OK, then the majority of people under blind conditions can't tell if they're drinking white wine or red wine, for instance. And of course, we had that with the Pepsi challenge and, and so on. So the, I think the purest example of that is vodka. Now, vodka only consists of ethyl alcohol, which is a commodity, water, which is a commodity, trade marketing, which is not a commodity, but any of the big booze companies can do it, Okay, and brand. And that's how, you know, a clever French Canadian was able to create a Grey Goose vodka from nothing, okay, purely through clever branding, and then sell it to one of the big companies, you know, for $5 billion or whatever it was, billions, literally billions of dollars. Because that is sort of the pure example in which it's actually impossible to be simply better, because the truth is physically Vodka is vodka is vodka of a given strength. Okay, they are varying strengths. But, you know, the, the part of the story about vodka is we, we put it through sort of 100 meters of charcoal to take out everything else. So in that case, which is the, the the most, the purest case I know, where branding is the driver of brand value, that's very, very unusual. That is not true of any business to business business. As you said, I started life at IBM. When I worked at IBM, we had a two-thirds global market share in mainframes, which was a huge market. And there was an expression, no one ever got fired for buying IBM because we didn't have lots of unique features and benefits, but we really looked after the DP managers who were the key people in in the customers. So in business to business, it's really impossible to create a valuable brand just by branding. You have to earn it. Actually, in the great majority of consumer products uh, there's limited scope for for you know creating a strong brand purely uh, through branding vodka being the case where it is possible and then in in consumer service businesses it's so difficult to provide a reliable service that uh, the most successful companies are primarily to do with with uh, the quality of service and, and how Reliably, you deliver a quality service.
0: Interesting, P- Petri. The the point why I brought this beer sample is my suspicion that it is so crucial to get the right understanding what the customer needs are. But typically, we overestimate our capacity to understand that. To do you see also there room for improvement and basically driving getting better insights?
1: Uh, well, I think it's a never-ending story and. Because you're talking about people and in in market research, we quite often ask, you know, what is it you do? Why do you do that? And what is it you do? We can get pretty good answers. Why do you do that? We get not quite so good answers. But what would you do if I were to come to you with something of which you have no previous experience and offer it to you? Would you buy it? OK, that we, we cannot get reliable answers to a question like that. We can ask the question. So if you want to uncover latent category needs, a better question is what really pisses you off about cars or hotels or whatever. Now, in the case of hotels, I have a very specific thing which pisses me off, which is that most hotel rooms, the, the lighting is far too complicated. And I know I'm not alone. I know many, many people, you know. So hotel designers love to do things which look terrific, but, you know, you're tired after a journey. You get into a hotel room. You can't turn on the bloody (laughs) nights. So that is, you know, to me, a market in which the simply better message has not been sort of properly taken on board, which is before you worry about can we make it prettier, or, you know, should we add this sort of little extra, which people might might welcome? Once they open the door of that room, can they turn the light on? And do they know how to control the other lights? That's the, that's the kind of message we're talking about. And it's particularly true in service businesses, which is two-thirds of the modern economy.
0: Patrick, we could talk uh, the whole night here. But we're running out of time. Uh, If you would be me, which question would you have asked uh, for me?
1: Well, as you say, it's a very, very rich um, topic. I think there's one question I, I think I'd have asked, which again comes out of the book. And that is that we have a chapter on marketing communications. And in the case, I think one reason why marketers get so obsessed about being different from the competition and fall into this trap of focusing so much on the competition that they lose a bit of focus on the customer is because in the case of advertising, they're right. In the case of advertising, especially in today's market, overcommunicated market, where everyone has so much noise coming at them, it's really important for your advertising to be distinctive and creative in order to cut through. And I think that the the, the unique selling proposition you know came the people who first came up with it were advertising people and in the case of in the case of advertising it's true that your advertising does need to be distinctive and similarly packaging all marketing communications in order to cut through does need to be distinctive and we will we will always need advertising agencies creative agencies or the equivalent to keep coming up with creative ways of communicating our brand and things about our brand what went wrong is when the advertising people started, then to have to, to tell us, okay, the whole product and service needs to have something unique, and that's when this idea of the unique selling proposition came up, uh, which I think has done far more harm than good.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, to to rephrase that for people like me, advertising needs to be distinct, which means need to be different to be noticed, right? Yes. Correct, uh, and that's basically the job of the, of the advertising, so that you consume and remember what is telling you.
1: Yes. Well, so otherwise it gets in in today's society. Uh, there is there are so many people trying to communicate with us, and there's so much noise that we are very good as as humans in a modern society at screening most of it out. And you don't want them to do that with your advertising. Now, your advertising needs to cut through. And that is a necessary but not sufficient condition for effectiveness. If they don't even notice your advertising, it will achieve nothing. If they do notice your advertising, it may achieve something. Yeah.
0: This is also true for the branding, yeah? So that uh, absolutely. So they re- recognize your brand in the shelf or so?
1: Exactly, exactly. All all of those communication aspects, including packaging. So the, I think it's when people blur these two messages, one which in the case of most brands, is, is is a less important message, which is that your advertising and other marketing communications need to be distinctive in order to cut through, but they then need to be effective. Okay, and that's difficult, and very important. And people mix that message, which is specific to marketing communications, they mix that up with the broader message about what is our overall brand positioning and, and the product and the service and so on. And uh, the truth is that, what customers want is for you to improve their lives, right? And great creative branding can do a little bit of that, okay? So branding which makes them laugh, okay? In the UK particularly, I don't know if, if this is true also in Germany, but some of the, the great beer ads. We don't love them. Okay, well, there are some very funny beer ads in the UK, and, and we love them. And that's a way, and of course the same is true uh, in digital, Okay, the messages which go viral, I think some of the bad messages which go viral are sort of very angry and negative, but the good messages which go viral very often are funny and people share things which are funny. So uh, being funny um, you know, is one way to do this in the case of something like beer, where the unspoken truth is that most people can't tell the difference The other thing about beer is it's made by brewers and the brewers who, you know, can tell the difference between even two different batches of beer. And they really, really think it's the quality of the product, which is the main thing that makes people buy the brand. And I mean, I've had some experience of of dealing with brewers. So (laughs) they find it very hard to accept that the customers, you know, can't really tell the difference.
0: Wonderful last word. uh, Patrick, thanks so much for for enlightening us today. It was a pleasure.
1: It's been a pleasure. Yes. I enjoyed talking to you.
0: See you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.